0: If you turn with me in God's word to the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, I'd like to read a sizable portion of that chapter. When we get to verse 35, we'll actually skip down to verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, at verse 1, the word of the Lord, the apostle writes, moreover, Brother and I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you which also you received and in which you stand but which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time." that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, Whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, the most pitiable But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting which in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And then down to verse 50, 50, 5-0. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We end God's Word there, the reading of it, and we turn in the Catechism, the Forms and Prayers book, to page 218, page 218 in the Forms and Prayers book, into the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17. And as the Catechism continues to explain the articles of the Apostles' Creed... Now it deals with that of Christ's resurrection. And question 45 says, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? It goes right for the benefit. First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are already raised to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Let's bow before the Lord and ask if he'll meet us in his word tonight. Father in heaven, open our ears and open our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we may see the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. And in believing that we may be strengthened in all the benefits we've just confessed Hear our prayer and be magnified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The congregation of Christ, we believe Jesus rose from the dead. I'm sure all of us seated here tonight believe that we've confessed it and we've sung it. It's, it's a fact, it's a fact that Christ rose from the dead, that the same Jesus who, who was crucified, who was nailed to a cross, who was laid in a tomb, that he Physically, he bodily was raised up from the dead in new life. It didn't just arise in someone's heart, he didn't just live in someone's memory, but he came back to life and was in fact was raised to greater life, to resurrection life. The evidence is there. The Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians, he lists all these various appearings of the risen Lord Jesus. He appeared even to 500 at once. The majority are still alive. Paul says, you can go interview them. You can go talk to them. They saw him. Jesus lives. We believe that. We haven't talked to those witnesses, but we have the apostolic witness and the word. We have everything we need. We have the sure scriptures that testify that Christ lives. And so tonight, we believe that. We confess that. But we can ask ourselves this question tonight. Do we... Do we live it? Is our confession of the living Christ, of his resurrection, is it a confession that that works its way into the knit and gritty of our lives? Is it a mere formality that we stand here each week and we recite the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or is it something we believe down into the details of our lives? Do we really live like it? You know, we have this pattern sometimes of compartmentalizing our lives, right? So we, we, we segment our lives, and, and the compartments sometimes seem unrelated to each other. And so we can end up in our lives with a, a Sunday compartment. And that's when I feel spiritual, and that's when I confess these things, and that's when I believe these things. But it doesn't have too much to do with Monday morning or Wednesday afternoon or Friday night. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ stays here in the midst of God's people, in the midst of Easter songs. But it doesn't mean too much when I go to work or school or when I drive down the road or when I live in this world, it seems rather irrelevant then. The Corinthians, in a different way, had failed the course in logic and consistency. There were apparently some in Corinth who maybe wanted to hold on to the idea that Jesus arose, but they didn't believe that believers will arise. It's not entirely clear what they were holding. Maybe it's the air that Paul mentions to Timothy of Hymenaeus and Philetus who said the resurrection's already happened. We've already obtained. We've we've been spiritually risen. We we have the victory, and that's all there is now. Our souls will go to heaven, but Nothing of the bodies. Or maybe it was some kind of Greek thinking. Remember, the Greeks were not too fond, some of them, of material matter. Because the, the, the real thing, the beautiful thing, is the soul and the body, flesh. Well, that's the nasty thing. And so they picture the soul as a beautiful bird stuck in a cage. But upon death, the soul departs the cage and is free at last. And so, according to Greek thinking, the resurrection of the body was undesirable. You would not want to be stuck in the body forever. But whatever it was the Corinthians were doing, they had this inconsistency of thinking that they could hold on somehow to Christ's resurrection and deny their own resurrection. And the Apostle Paul says, not so. If Christ is risen, then so will you. But if you will not rise, if there's no resurrection of the body, then not Christ, not even Christ has arisen from the dead. And so the Apostle Paul confronts this kind of spiritualizing of the resurrection that was going on in, in Corinth, and he was telling them that this is no small matter. And then to press home his point, Paul confronts the church with the alternative. If there is no resurrection, and if Christ has not been risen, then this is the consequence. And I thought maybe it would be helpful for us tonight to think about the resurrection in the reverse. What if Christ did not rise? What if Christ did not rise? If Christ is not risen, then number one, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the first point. The Apostle Paul confronts these Corinthians along this alternative route in verse 12. He says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do you, some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And then he presses into it. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Some, even in modern times, have decided that the resurrection of Jesus, bodily, physically, doesn't matter as long as he lives in your heart. As long as as he means something to you. Paul says, no, then, then faith is empty. It's all useless. In fact, our preaching is empty. We've preached that he's bodily risen. Then the preaching is false. The witness of the apostles is false. And then he comes to the very pointed verse in verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Can you imagine what it would be like tonight, to be still in your sins? Jesus tells the, the hard-hearted Jews in John 8, 21, you will die in your sins. That's, that's one of the most alarming statements in all of Scripture, that you will die in your sins. To be in your sins is to be regarded by God as, as guilty. It's to be one who's still clothed in wickedness and one who will appear before the living judge on on the day of death or Christ's coming as one who deserves God's eternal condemnation. Can you imagine going home tonight in that state, believing I'm still in my sins? There's this great chasm between me and God. God is fiercely angry with me. I live under his wrath, and the moment I die, I will meet his wrath. To believe tonight that I'm still in my sins, that he's... Marked down every wrong deed I've done. And he's got the entire list. He's recorded every wrong word I've ever spoke. And not one of them is missing. That he has examined every thought of mine. He knows every impatient thought, every greedy thought, every lustful thought. And I will stand before him to give account for every single one of those on that day. To know that I've offended God. God is angry with me, and he has reserved for me a place of everlasting darkness. I will die in my sins. You know, part of growing up is learning to anticipate the consequences and to connect the consequence, to foresee the consequence with the possible action. So parents teach children, you know, if you put your hand on the stove, the stove's hot, your hand's going to get hot, it's going to burn Not a a wise course. And parents teach young people when they're dating. Don't date an unbeliever. If you date an unbeliever, bad things may happen in the present, and you may find yourself having a very difficult time not marrying the unbeliever. Beware the consequence. But we don't always recognize that there's consequences, not just to, to what we think of as practical things, living things. There's consequences to doctrine. And sometimes people are so careless in their doctrine, they just throw it out. Well, I just believe this, I just believe that. And the Apostle Paul is saying, wake up. What you believe matters. If Christ is not risen, you face eternal destruction. Have you pondered the consequences of the resurrection of the body? If Jesus has not risen, you are still in your sins. Now, let's go a little bit deeper here tonight and ask the question, why? Why, if Christ is not risen, are we still in our sins? Can you answer that question tonight? Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ matter? I mean, we confess on the cross, he died for my sins. So whether he lives again or not, isn't that sort of irrelevant? He died for my sins. But the Bible teaches us that if Jesus is still dead, then he has not fully paid for our sins. Because if death still has power over Jesus Christ, then the debt is not paid. Maybe think of an analogy like a man in prison, sentenced for 20 years to prison. As long as he's still in prison, then he is under the sentence of that judgment. But when the prison doors open and he goes free... It reveals that the sentence has been satisfied. If death still has hold on Jesus, and the power of death is the guilt of sin, then if Christ is still in the grip of death, then the guilt of sin remains. Not Christ's sin, of course. He didn't sin. But our sin, which he took to himself. how horrible it would be to believe that Christ was still in the grip of death because then we'd have to confess that the wrath of God abides on us and we'd have to go home tonight and try to go to sleep knowing that if we die in our sleep, we'll be naked and ashamed before God. We would not meet a smiling face, but a face offended. But tonight we confess that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that is the proof and the evidence that he's paid it all, that death no longer has hold on him because sin no longer accuses us. Remember Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered to death for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. His being raised is the evidence, the confirmation that we've been justified, declared righteous before God. Upon Christ's death and resurrection, the accuser, Satan, is cast out of heaven. He can no longer accuse. The prison doors have flown open. And the saints of God sing for joy because there's release. The guilt is removed. And in fact, God, by raising his son, has shouted the loudest, Amen. On the cross, Jesus suffered and suffered. He he declared it's finished. But when God raises his son from the dead, God declares, Amen and Amen. Payment. Payment has been paid in full. And so we live tonight not under God's wrath, but under his blessing. Jesus ascends into heaven with his hands lifted up, blessing his disciples. He blesses us from heaven. The curse is removed. And now we go forth singing, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. It redeems your life from destruction. It crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. We are right with God. How can we be sure? Because Christ is risen. All our sin is paid for. How can we be sure? Because Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Catechism says... First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make a share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. It's not only that Christ's resurrection testifies that he's paid the whole price, but I think the Catechism is saying that he now lives in order to minister to us the riches of his work, to make us sharers in that righteousness. Jesus Christ lives to give his spirit to us, to work in us repentance, to bring us into union with him so that his saving death could be ours. All that he's done is credited to our account. So we don't serve a dead savior tonight. But the savior, Hebrews 1, proclaims, when he had by himself purged our sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ from heaven ministers from on high to his people. He sends the spirit. He leads them to himself. He gives them faith that they may receive the very gift of a righteous standing in God's eyes. If Christ is not risen, I'm still in my sins. But if the Christ whom I'm united by faith has risen, then death has no power over me, my sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, and now I have reason to be glad. We the greatest thing in all the world, don't we, tonight? We confess Jesus arose from the dead so casually sometimes. We might as well shout it out, though, because it's the assurance that God is pleased with us for Christ's sake, that He has nothing but blessing to give us that he will turn away all evil from our lives or he will work it to the greatest possible good. Because all is well between God and his people. Christ has risen. He hears our prayers. invites us to the throne of grace. He comforts us as his children. He blesses us from heaven. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. If Christ is risen, you are righteous before God. Well, secondly tonight, if Christ is not risen, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. In verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought, Against or with beasts and Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? And then he says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul begins there by saying, "You know, what, why am I going through all of this? Why am I suffering? Why am I risking my life if the dead do not rise? If we're all in a state of final and hopeless condemnation, then why would we endure all these troubles and trials? What's the point? I mean, if we're in a state of final and hopeless condemnation, we would live differently, wouldn't we? I wouldn't expose myself to wild beasts, to men who are upset and want to kill me. No, if I have no more hope than the worldling has, then I may as well live like the worldling. And so Paul says, yes, if the dead don't rise, then party hard, because this is it. If you're going to die like a beast, then live like a beast. The natural consequence of denying Christ's resurrection, therefore, and denying our own resurrection, therefore, is that we have no hope and we may as well live like reckless sinners. Seeking all the pleasure that we can in the present, because this is all we have. And so it is in the world, right? Many unbelievers abandoned themselves to sensual enjoyments, to the pleasures of sin. It's not that they have no doctrine, therefore they live this way. It's that they have a certain doctrine, therefore they live this way. What is their doctrine? Their doctrine is there's no resurrection of the dead. They don't gather in a worship service to confess it, but they do confess it every day. They say their creed, there is no resurrection of the dead, there is no life after this, therefore I will live this way. See, we can never let somebody tell us that doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine doctrine is your life. Whatever you believe is how you will live. If you believe there's no resurrection, you live one way. If you believe you will live, then you live another way. If the dead don't rise, eat, drink, be merry. But on the contrary, since we believe we will rise, that we will be raised up gloriously to the God we love, let us live for him, let us die for him, let us seek him, and let us please him. If we belong to another kingdom, if our citizenship is in heaven, if we will see the Lord Jesus who died and rose and we will be raised up in glory with him, then let us live like it. And yeah, we get confused. We get confused. And so the apostle says in verse 33: Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Corinthians have these false teachers and these people around them that are saying there's no resurrection of the body. Don't let them deceive you. In fact, don't hang out with them anymore. If you make Friends of false teachers, it's going to affect how you live. We could ask ourselves tonight who our associates are. Who are our friends? Who do we hang out with? Are they people whose doctrine is there's no resurrection? Or are they people who have a hope for the future? The friends with power to encourage us or to corrupt us are not simply those who stand beside us in the flesh, but they're all the philosophers of the age who come to us in podcasts and on our favorite news station, who sing in our ears and who entertain us, who write books and so forth. And it's not that we can't use anything of the world. But the question is, are we wise in our use? Are we guarding our hearts? Are we considering carefully what the main influences upon our lives are? If we live with unguarded hearts in the company of those who confess there is no resurrection, then it will inevitably lead us to live as if there is no resurrection. Are you unknowingly absorbing a perspective on life that says this is all there is? Make lots of money. Own lots of things. Have lots of fun. Enjoy yourself. Indulge yourself. You deserve it. You only go around once. Make the most of it. Happiness is waiting for you. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The end never comes. There's no consequences. Seek yourself, drink, party, indulge, pursue your pleasures. Don't miss out. Don't let life pass you by. If there's no resurrection, then go for it. But Christ who loves his people and who bled for them and who arose to minister to them Warns through the Apostle Paul, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Who's speaking here? It's the resurrected Jesus through the Apostle Paul. It's the one described, the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the revelation one with eyes like a flame of fire, who sees everything. The one who proclaims that, that he lives, he was dead, behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and death. And he's saying to us, open your eyes and see, your Savior lives, and you will live so awake to a holy life Jesus had said in John 5, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Even the unbeliever body will rise, rise to be condemned. But if you're going to arise to life, Then right now, the Lord Christ says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Don't be careless, but be careful. Don't offend your Lord, but get ready to meet him. Wake up, put off drunkenness, be alert to the reality before you that you will live. So look to the happiness in store for you, to the place he's prepared for you. But is it possible? Is it possible for me to live unto righteousness? Is it just that I need to try harder? To be a good person? Well, no. Multitudes of people have tried that. I don't even have to recount for you tonight the numerous people who are outstanding moral citizens, who believed in family values and blah, 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 and then their life was uncovered to us at last. And we are horrified. Left to ourselves, left to our best selves, trying as hard as we might, our hearts are a sewer of filthy contents and foul fumes that would nauseate the heart of God. And that's all we are if Christ is not risen. But the good news tonight is that Christ has risen. And that means that not just that our record has been cleansed before God, we've been made righteous before the law in our state, but it also means that our condition has been changed, that Christ has come into our hearts. What is the second benefit, the Catechism says, of Christ's resurrection? Second, by his power, we too are already, already raised to a new life. We have been spiritually raised from the dead. We've been raised up from the death of sin. We've been awoken to a new life. We've been born again, born from above, regenerated by the Spirit. And now we love God. We love his law. In our inner man, we delight in God's law. And we long to please him. See, brothers and sisters, we could never escape the siren calls of this world if we were left to our own strength and left to our old hearts We would follow the way of sin. But the benefit of a living Savior is that he sends his spirit to make us alive. Alive to righteousness. So we're not like the world anymore. Look around at the world and we see zombies. Internally dead people walking about. We see neighbors who are shackled to their sin. They can't set themselves free. We see worldlings entranced by the things of this life. And they can't rise any higher to think of any greater destiny than to have a bigger house or a better job or a whatever it might be. But then you look at the church of Jesus Christ. And you meet a people who are struggling against sin and crying out for mercies and trying to learn God's word and how to please God. Because they have a hope. It's not eat, drink, and marry and do whatever I want on earth. I belong to another. I belong to another kingdom and I will live for him. People who know their treasures above. And these are the people set free, the people made new, the people raised up to a new life, whose desires are changed, whose goals are changed. If Christ is not risen, eat, drink, and party hard. But if Christ has been raised, then awake to righteousness and do not sin. You will see your Savior. Finally, tonight, If Christ is not risen, then when you die, you will perish forever. You look at verse 17 through 19, returning there now. And the apostle says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then he says in verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, the most pitiable. What a, what a contrast in verse 18. If Christ isn't risen, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I mean, of course, these things are impossibilities, right? But the Apostle is saying, in effect, then that means that your former church members who aren't with you anymore, they close their eyes on the joy of salvation, and they open their eyes in the destruction of hell. A horrible thing. But that's the consequence if Christ is not risen. It means that when they died, they found no advocate in the presence of God, but they appeared before God naked and ashamed, and they were sentenced to the place of eternal destruction. That's the alternative to a Savior who is risen. A horrible thought. to have to think that all of our brothers and sisters who've, who've died, who've fallen asleep in the Lord, actually upon the moment of death, began to perish everlastingly. And if that's the case with them, then so it is with you. That if they perished, you will perish upon death. And Paul says, if that's the case, then of all men, we're the most miserable. We're more miserable than all men. Because we live a life now, right, of groaning. We're willing to be persecuted, to be hated by the world. We deny ourselves certain things in the hope of what will be. We, we struggle against our sin. We, we open our hearts to being convicted by the Spirit and groaning and hating sin. And all of this in the hope of what will be. But if there is no goodness after this life, we are most deluded people, the most deceived people by the cruelest trickery. Paul says, "Why would I give my body to be beaten, stoned, and shipwrecked, and hated by men, and imprisoned? If this life is all there is, if this body will perish in the grave forever, no, then Christians, as one writer says, are twice losers." They've renounced the lifestyle of a rebellious world for a heaven that does not exist. And then we are to be pitied because we are deluded and cheated. But the good news tonight is that Christ has risen. And he is, according to verse 23, the first fruits. Israel brought their first fruits to the Lord. It was a token of the entire crop. A farmer might look at the, the first ripe ear of corn it's the promise and the pledge that all the rest will come to ripeness Christ is the first fruits he has been raised from the dead the guarantee that you will be raised from the dead and so the catechism says that the third benefit of Christ's resurrection is this that Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection what a blessed resurrection it is verse 42 So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What is that? It's a body that's entirely controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's a body that's entirely controlled by the Spirit. It's it's a body that at last is not involved in sinning, it doesn't have terrible passions and desires. It's a body that's made new and governed perfectly by the Spirit. It's a body that's fitted to live with the glorious Lord Jesus. Those who've gone before us are not suffering, an everlasting torment. Members of Christ's church, our brothers and sisters, are not, were not left alone without an advocate at the moment of their death, but they found a Savior there, the Lord Jesus, in body and soul, leading them with nail-pierced hands into the glories of heaven and assuring them that in a moment their bodies will rise too. What a glorious resurrection. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's telling the Corinthians, don't don't try to believe that you've already had the resurrection. You're not going to inherit the kingdom as you are. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all, we shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There's many ramifications then, right? If Christ has not been raised, then you will perish eternally. But if Christ has been raised, then your body will be raised too. And that means, verse 58, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You work in the body upon this earth, knowing that your labor is not in vain, because your body will rise, your works are established in Christ. What's done well lasts. Number two, it means that if our bodies are going to rise, then not just our soul should be kept pure, but our bodies also. Remember the Corinthians earlier in chapter 6? It seems as if they're thinking that if only my soul really matters, then it doesn't matter what I do with my flesh. And the apostle says, Don't you unite yourself to a prostitute. Your body's united to Christ. Glorify God in your body. Number three means that if our bodies are going to raise, that we lay the body of the believer in the grave in hope. Clearly, our world doesn't believe there's a resurrection of the body. Look at the way they speak about the body, the way they treat the body upon death. Christians understand the body is laid to rest in hope that it will be raised. We're not looking to freeze our body in some great freezer until science discovers something new and we can be brought back to life. No. We're not those who are especially concerned that we might be buried alive. And I remember seeing a show when I was a kid about... People putting in some kind of doorbells in their caskets or something so they could notify people in case they awoke in their casket. And it dawned on me this week, I get it now. Instead of fearing death and God's judgment, they thought they would replace that with a far lesser fear. I might be stuck alive in my casket. No, that's a trickery of Satan. We're going to be raised, these bodies will live in glory. And so you see the great ramifications there are for believing in the resurrection of the body, believing it not just Sunday night in church, but believing it into the nooks and crannies of Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon and Friday night. Christ lives. And so we will live. We do live. And our bodies will be transformed. Do you believe in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? Do you believe that you will rise? What difference does it make in your life tomorrow? If it makes little difference, then do you believe it very strongly? If the world was asked, if your neighbor was asked, if your coworker was asked, who do you think are the people on earth that believe firmly their bodies will rise? Would they point at you and say, that's the guy who thinks he's going to rise? May the Lord Jesus work this truth deep into our lives. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you with gratitude for a Lord's Day in which we've been privileged to sing your praises, to petition you for your help from heaven, and to hear your word. We thank you for our hope, glorious hope. And we pray, Lord, that you would work that hope into every crevice of our hearts, into every area of our lives, for the glory of our risen reigning, and coming Savior. In his name we pray, amen.